himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Let me pray. Father, right now we come uh, having sung about your great faithfulness to us when things are going well and when things aren't going well. And I pray that we would be faithful to praise you as you are faithful and you never fail us, you never leave us, you never forsake us. I lift up my brother Bob and as he prepares for this surgery, we pray that the peace of God that passes all understanding would comfort his heart and his mind in Christ Jesus. We ask that he and Irma would be able to trust in the Lord with all their heart and not lean on their own understanding, but in all their ways they would acknowledge you and understand that you'll direct their paths. We ask that you'd give guidance and wisdom to those who are taking part in actually performing the surgery and those who are prepping him and those who are attending to him during it. We pray that they'd be on their A game, that they'd come ready and that there would be no complications or problems, that things would go well and that you would bring him to a full and speedy recovery. We pray now, Lord, as we continue to worship through the study of your word, that you would be honored and magnified and that our hearts would be challenged and that our lives would be changed as a result of your Spirit's work in us. We pray for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's not really a news to you, but I, I believe that as never before, the, the family, as we know it, is kind of under assault. Okay? I'm going to share a few thoughts about why I think that's true, but one of those has to do with the issue of the, the main topic of the text that we're going to be looking at has to do with divorce. And divorce is uh, kind of an epidemic in our culture and especially in our land. And there is probably, I would venture to say, there, there's hardly anybody here today or listening that hasn't been impacted uh, by divorce. Divorce brings pain that's tremendous, and it brings an impact in our culture that's, that's really troubling. But it's not just divorce that, that is, is kind of a problem within our culture. There is also not just the, the disillusion of, disillusionment of marriage, but there's also the, the redefinition of marriage. Now, some of you remember uh, back in 2015 when the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in the Obergefell decision that, sadly, uh, legalizing same-sex marriage. But it's not just the disillusion of marriage, it's not just the redefinition of marriage, but there's also the issue of dealing with singleness. It's kind of like an exploding epidemic, uh, not, I shouldn't say epidemic, but it's an exploding reality, okay? And I don't mean to paint it in a bad picture, it's not necessarily a bad thing, okay? But it, but it can be if you're, you're driven in your singleness simply by convenience, driven in uh, a singleness simply by... Uh, uh, you know, kind of carefree living and just do what you want to do for as long as you want to do and a failure and absence to understand what it really means to be committed in a relationship. We have a lot of people, and I've said this before, uh, almost always when uh, a young couple comes to me and they want to do premarital counseling, I just assume, uh, even in the church, unfortunately, that they're living together. Uh, and then we work from there, Okay. But that's just kind of the assumption that, that you make. And so all of these things affect the family. And the last kind of bastion of uh, attack or the last fortress that's being is, is children. 
are under assault in, in our culture and in society. In other words, the, the value of children, the importance of children, what they, what they should be to us as individuals and as a society is under assault. For example, you know, I read in the paper, I read in the, the social media about the schools and, and uh, seeking to take control away from parents. Trying to decide and deciding for, for parents when and what kind of vaccinations their, their children are get. Whether the kids are receiving uh, contraceptive, uh, contraceptives and then they decide and instruct the, the children as to, you know, you can help, we'll help you decide what gender you are. So these are the things that are happening in our culture that I think are an assault against the family. And all this stuff happens in schools without parental permission. I mean, the parents aren't signing off on this. They're, they're doing this without the permission of the parents. So divorce, the, the redefinition of, of marriage, uh, singleness, uh, what's happening to and how children are treated in the families and societies in our culture is the way of the world is in direct conflict with God's Word, what God's Word has to say about these things. And so I think in this rapidly deteriorating moral climate, it's imperative for the body of Christ, for people who know and name the name of Christ, to be sticking to the Word of God and not capitulating to the culture for the good of the family and ultimately for the glory of God. we got to do what God says, not what the world says. And so if you have your Bibles... I would invite you to open them up, or if you have your device, you can turn there or get there. I don't, you don't turn to a device. You get there on a device, okay, right? Uh, to Matthew chapter 19. Or if you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, under a seat in front of you somewhere, okay? Matthew chapter 19, and I'm going to read through the text, verses 1 through 15. Now, if you're opening your Bible, you probably have a heading across there, divorce, or something about divorce. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but it's only one of the things that are talked about here. Divorce, singleness, and, and children. I've kind of reframed uh, it. Marriage, singleness, and children. Because I think the discussion of divorce is really getting at the heart of marriage. So I'm going to read the text beginning with verse 1 of Matthew chapter 19 through verse 15. And it came about that when Jesus had finished these words... He departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And some of the Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of the, your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, Well, if, if a relationship with a man... With his wife is like this, and it's better not to marry. He said to them, Not at all, or not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way, and from their mother's womb, there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. 
And then some children were brought to him, so that he may lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them, and Jesus said to them, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from them. So it seems to me, as I look through this text, there there are three lessons that Jesus taught on family relationships. Now, I know that others can divide this section up. I could have put section verses 13 to 15 with the next section because of the topic that it relates to, but I'm including it here, and Alan will pick up next week with chapter 19, beginning with verse 16. But here we go, these three lessons on relationships. First of all, I think from the text, we learn the permanence of marriage. We learn about the permanence of marriage. There are two considerations, I think, that make evident that permanence is what's being emphasized by Jesus, even though the topic is divorce, okay, it's, I think, intended to emphasize to us the permanence with which God has for marriage. First of all, there's an introduction to the topic. In verses 1 and 2, we see that it says where Jesus finished these words. So we're introduced to a new section in the Gospel of Matthew. Because if you went back and looked at chapter 7, verse 28, chapter 11, verse 1, and chapter 13, verse 53, you'd see almost exactly the same statement. And Jesus finished these words. And Jesus finished these words. So we're closing the chapter on section, chapter 13, verse 53, through chapter 18. And now we're opening a new chapter, in, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. And so Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. Jesus is moving closer and closer to the cross, and Jesus is performing miracles and teaching his disciples. So it's kind of getting down to crunch time here for Jesus. And so he's seeking to steal, to strengthen, to solidify his disciples and what it means to be a follower of Christ and to live that way so that they're ready for him to leave, all right? And Jesus had left Galilee... Mostly, you know, a lot of Gentiles up in there. And he's come down to Judea, working his way towards Jerusalem. Mostly a Jewish crowd. And a large crowd had gathered. And the text says in verse 2 that he healed them. So who did he heal? Well, the crowd. I mean, or most of the crowd. A lot of the crowd. And so Jesus' popularity is like escalating. Right? And his credibility among the 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 needy people, is increasing. And all the time, there's a disproportionate increase in hostility among the religious leaders. Okay, So as Jesus is becoming more popular with the people and more credible in his statements about being the Messiah, he's offending more and more these religious leaders, and they're becoming upset. And out of the crucible of this conflict... We're introduced to this topic of divorce and marriage. And then we see the instructions. The second aspect here is the instructions on marriage, which are a response, basically. Jesus is teaching us about divorce and, and, re, and marriage and remarriage, basically in response to some fickle questions. I mean, these aren't really sincere questions. They're, they're fickle questions that are there to test him in hopes that he would fail. Right? They can, they can pin him to the wall. Our, our middle daughter just took a week or so ago, she took her graduate record exam because she's trying to get into graduate school. 
And on the graduate record exam, there's a lot of difficult test questions, right? And if you don't answer them correctly, you're not going to pass and you're not going to get accepted into graduate school. Well, Jesus was taking his, you know, theological graduate record exam here according to the Pharisees and the scribes, and they came to him with tough questions. And so this first question that we encounter in verse 3, and some Pharisees came to him testing him, saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? So imagine Jesus is kind of like walking. You're going to have the Olympics, right? So he's walking on the balance beam, all right? So there's a balance beam, and he's, it's, a, it's like, you know, like four inches wide, you know? So he's walking along this balance beam of theological correctness. And if he falls on one side, he's going to definitely mess up because he's going to do something in opposition to the law of Moses, which the the religious leaders held and, and the people held in high regard. And if he does that, well, that's a pit that he's going to fall into. He's never going to escape from. Credibility, uh, authority, boom, he's gone. On the other side is the approval of the religious leaders of the day. And so if Jesus doesn't thread the needle, if he doesn't walk the fine line, he's doomed on either side. And so that's what we see happening, well, it's my description of what we see happening in this text. Jesus is being asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? If you were running for a school board in any, probably any, school district in the country, and somebody said to you, what do you, how do you where do you come down on mask mandates for students in school? Well, I mean, that's like a loaded question, right? I mean, like, how do, how do you answer that one? How do you thread that needle so that you don't offend somebody? Well, this is the mastery of the, of the master that Jesus comes in. There were two rabbinical schools of thought with regard to this question. They're not just asking this question out of thin air. They had, they, they had done their homework. They knew what they were doing. And so, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Well, the, 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 the conservative school of Shammai said that you can only divorce your, your wife for some indecency. And the liberal school, the Hillel school, they said any reason. You know, just easy, easy peasy, no problem. Doesn't matter. You can get a divorce for whatever cause you want. But the problem was that most of the Pharisees who were asking the question were of this liberal vein, and they said it was pretty much easy peasy, whatever you wanted to do. And so Jesus stood the risk of offending them or the strict school or violating Moses' law. Take your pick. It's a trap. And Jesus walks into it masterfully. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, answered and said, have you not read? What a way to start. He's talking to the religious leaders, you know, the people who are teaching the law of Moses, teaching Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he says to them, haven't you guys read? I mean, like the very first part of the book, uh, the Bible. Have you not read that he created them male and female? And then he goes on and says, and said, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. His rebuke accused the Pharisees either of ignorance of the law or of apathy to the law or their practice was antagonistic towards God's word, which predated the law that they were trying to get him to mess up on. 
So when they ask him a question about the law, he's talking, they're talking about Deuteronomy, and he's saying, oh, let's go a little bit back before that. Genesis, okay? So Jesus is referring to Genesis 1.27 when he quotes these verses in verses 4 and 5. And so there are some principles here that uh, God, they had, uh, you know, certainly they had read the creation account, but they were conveniently somehow ignoring the principles of God's design, both of gender and of his definition of marriage. And so now he kind of walks them through, making some corrections and adaptations. And so here we have what Jesus says about, I'm going to give you three principles that I'm drawing from the text, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to see them there. First of all, that marriage is designed by God, based on Genesis, for one man and one woman. Okay. So when you read this, this is the very beginning. This is Genesis 1, 27. This, this idea of, a, of two genders is... From the beginning, there are male and there are female. Those are the options. Making any contrary designation of a person's sexual identity fundamentally disordered. It's, it's fundamentally contrary to the Scripture. Okay? Now that's what the Scripture says. What struck me as I was reading through the text is every human being is derivative in our existence. We are derived from God first and then other human beings. He made either male or female. God created them. So to identify some, your, uh, a person, to, to identify themselves contrary to what theology, what God says, and what biology, what God made, affirms is an affront and an abomination to God. Now, that's not to say that we are to be mean, cruel, insensitive, or like pig-headed. We, we treat all people as those who are created in the image of God. We treat them with kindness. We treat them with decency. But we do not consent to. We do not condone. We do not celebrate a disordering of God's ordained order. Okay? Gender, because to do so undermines the fabric of the scripture and marriage itself. Because marriage is defined as one man and one woman from the beginning. Principle two marriage is defined. So, first one is it's designed by God, it's then defined by God as a union of one man and one woman. In verses five and six, uh, he clearly states that um, in this, which is he's drawing from Genesis chapter 2. I want you to look at Genesis chapter 2. If uh, we look at Genesis 2, verses 18 and 22, then the Lord God said, It is not good for a man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman, a wo- fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So marriage is a gift. Man and woman come together as a gift. It's a gift of God. We are, if you're married, you are your spouse's gift to you, God's gift to each other. Okay, so we're God's gift to each other. All right, this is how God said. And the two leave their respective families and they cleave to each other, becoming one flesh, the fusion of two into one, which is a, a spiritual, emotional, physical union. Okay? 
uh, as one commentator said, it's God's math. When it comes to the Trinity, one plus one plus one is one. And when it comes to marriage, one plus one is one. Uh, that's how one commentator put it. And I thought, uh, that's pretty good. Um, it's God's. So any definition, definition and this cleaving and this forming and this one flesh, it communicates permanency. It's, it's not the idea that this is supposed to be dissolved. It's like in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't an option. <laughs> you know, it's like, whew, okay, one and one, we're it. So that's the way God from the beginning. Any definition of marriage other than what God designed and declared is unbiblical. Polygamy, polyamory, homosexuality, you know, whatever you want to, that's not what God had designed in the text of Scripture. So just because the Iowa and the U.S. Supreme Court have made rulings that permit same-sex marriage, they do not prescribe it, and God's Word forbids it. So that's where God has come down. So, but here we do, in the classroom, in the family rooms, and in the courtroom, marriage is always redefined, and a divorce is always legitimized. And this is the contrary combat that comes between us. And so we see it's normalized, okay? Jesus didn't settle for what the new normal was in his day. And he doesn't ask us to settle for what the new normal is in ours. Normal for him is marriage between a man and a woman for life. And human procreation, which was to come as an outworking of this union, is impossible apart from marriage as God intended it. I don't care what, you know, you can do all kinds of gymnastics with science, but you're never going to do anything but get uh, something, some part of a man and some part of a woman have to come together in order for you to have another human being. This is the way it is. Um, now, that's God's design, and that's biology, which God designed to make it happen. Okay? So this is the way God, so without compromising the truth, our, our, our calling is to extend love and compassion, the sensitivity to people who disagree with us. It's not to be beat people over the head with a stick, but we say this is the way God designed it. And you know what? God means it for our good because He knows what's best. And it's always what's best. I've told you, and I, I understand it. You think I'm just blowing smoke. I, I've had the horrific... responsibility of sitting and telling on two separate occasions a group of young children that their parents are no longer going to be together. And you cannot undo the look on those young people's faces. And I understand this is not easy. That's why God said, this is the way it should be. And I understand also that there is forgiveness and there is grace and mercy because most all of us have been impacted by this. And that's the mercy and the marvel of the Scripture, of what God has done. So we extend it, but we don't fail to call sin, sin, because people need to turn from their sin in order to receive God's forgiveness. Principle number three goes along with principle number two, and that is that marriage is destined to be permanent. If you look at verse six, which is Jesus' commentary 
on Genesis. What God has joined together, notice who the subject is, God. What God has joined together, let no man, let no mere human being decide that they're going to separate. No, God's plan for marriage is a permanent union between two people that he joins together as a reflection of his commitment to his church. That's Ephesians chapter 5. If the reflection, what's to reflect God's love for his church is the marriage union, then this indissoluble union between God and his people should be reflected by an indissoluble union between a husband and a wife. Otherwise, it doesn't really picture what God intended it to picture. That's the way God intended it. You know, a couple weeks ago, we were out at my folks, and we were, we're scraping the deck, you know, because they put a stain on the deck. Why is it that the stupid stain doesn't remain in my, on the deck, and my parents have to have this done almost every year? Well, the reason is because the paint stain forms a temporary bond. And Jesus says, a marriage is not to be a temporary bond. It's to be a permanent bond between a husband and wife. In America, 50% of all first marriages end in divorce. And they don't last. But God says, why what God has joined should not be separated. Like what David Platt put in his commentary, he says, only God can make marriage, only God can break marriage. Only God can make it, only God can break it. And God says in his word in Malachi chapter 2.16 that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. And the reason he hates it is because nobody wins. I, I can talk to anybody who's been impacted by divorce, and I say, well, who's the big winner here? Nobody. Nobody wins. I mean, maybe some get off uh, out of it a little better than others, but nobody wins in the whole thing. It's, it just creates hardship and heartache. Everybody So the Pharisees, then they, they looked to Deuteronomy 24 because they still wanted to justify their perspective on easy permissive and permissiveness in divorce and discredit Jesus. And so they come up with another question. Look at verse 7. said this. Well, they said to him, why then did Moses command, her to get, uh, command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Look at Jesus' answer. He said this. In verse 8, and he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted, don't, don't miss that word. What did they ask? Well, why did Moses command it? And Jesus says, uh, basically, he didn't. He permitted it. And the reason he permitted it is because you're, you're all bullheaded, you know. And basically, that's my paraphrase, but you're, you're stubborn. The stubbornness, the hardness of your heart, that's what causes it. So defiant hearts lead to divorce. And God provides a concession, but not a command to get a divorce. And so to stress the original plan for permanence, which contrasts with easy divorce, Jesus said, but from the beginning, verse 8, he says, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. But from the beginning, it is not, you know, Adam and Eve, now, you know, one guy, one gal, kind of like it. Not a lot of options there. So this is kind of the way it's intended to be from the beginning. But God's created order should inform, which Genesis 1 should inform Deuteronomy 
24, which is what they quoted, Deuteronomy 24. And we see here that Jesus then expounds on this concession. There's an exception to accommodate our weakness. What's that exception? Verse 9, immorality. Which immorality, what does that mean? Uh, well, there's a big discussion on immorality, but the, the Greek word is porneia, which means uh, deviation from uh, the, the norm. So you're not supposed to be involved with somebody other than your spouse. That's basically it. Immorality means that your intimacy with someone other than your spouse provides the only legitimate grounds that Jesus gives for the possibility, but not the requirement, the possibility, but not the requirement of, of a divorce. Because if that takes place, then the, the, the one flesh union has been violated. And so the innocent person is then able to get remarried without being accused of adultery. Because they hadn't committed adultery. They, the, that union was, was busted up by the, by the other spouse. You say, oh, wow. Then there's another biblical exception. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 7. If you have a believing spouse and an unbelieving spouse, and the unbelieving spouse decides they want to leave, then the believing spouse, I believe that it would be appropriate to understand that the believing spouse is not bound, and they're free to, the divorce doesn't bind them, and they're free to get remarried. Okay? So you say, well, what do we do with all this? Because I know that I'm talking to people, and people are hearing me, and they're like, well, that, didn't, that wasn't the reason for my breakup, or I didn't have that situation, or maybe I don't fit under that category. Well, here's the deal. If you're married, stay married. This is Jesus, he's, proving, he's saying, this is a union. I want you to stay married. So for whatever reason, if it was for a reason other than the, the biblical exceptions, then it's like, okay, then you just confess your sin and you say, Lord Jesus, you know, that, that was the way it was. Maybe I wasn't even a believer. Maybe I'm not even a believer now. But whatever happened, happened. Now I'm married, so I'm going to stay married. Because that's what God wants married people to do. And that's what he's trying to say in this text. Stay married. You see, divorce for any reason at all, incompatibility, well, we just fell out of love, we don't have feelings for each other, uh, poor hygiene, you know, on the part of my spouse, uh, you know, these are not, not really reasons. I mean, if that was the reason, uh, I think most of the guys on Duck Dynasty would probably be, by, be divorced by now, right? I mean, what, what, you know, like, what, who wants to come home to that? You know, it's like, uh, and they're cleaned up in this picture, you know, after maybe they've been out duck hunting uh, and cleaning a few ducks, it might not be such a, a, a nice deal. See, God wants us to stay married. Even when divorce is permissible, even in the case, and, and I've, I know of situations like this, even in the case it's not preferable. Because don't forget what we just studied in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against him, you go to your brother and you try to re reconcile with each other. Gospel solution is reconciliation, not separation. So even when it's permissible, it's not necessarily preferable. Because the gospel solution of reconciliation is a great testimony to the transforming power of Christ. Remarriage is biblical, is biblically permissible when divorce is biblically validated. Now, I've said stay married, okay? I said if you're there and you've been through that, you know, I, I know a little bit about the pain of it. So I'm sorry for you and to you. I know it's grievous. 
But don't let the troubling obliterate the mercy and grace of God. He's willing to forgive whatever happened in the past, and he wants you to make whatever marriage you have now the best thing you got, best thing that can be. And the only way that can happen ultimately is if you have a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Because only then will you perfectly reflect the union that God has with his church. I think about Carl. For 10 years, I watched Carl go almost every day to the care center because his beloved wife, Mary, had Alzheimer's. And day after day after day, he'd sit with Mary, he'd talk with Mary, he'd go to the meals with Mary, and she wouldn't recognize him, wouldn't realize who he was. But each day he went. Mary gave Carl nothing. Carl gave Mary a commitment that they made when they vowed to pledge their love to each other till death do us part. What a picture of what God wants. And so whatever you're in right now, if you're in a marriage right now, then that's what God wants, you to be unified and committed to that marriage right now. If you're not married right now, that's the kind of picture God wants for you in your marriage. And he will make it and can make it possible. Then we learn about the, the parameters of singleness. And this plays off of the discussion of divorce and remarriage. Because the disciples understood that Jesus was saying, hey, this is an all-in deal. You're supposed to be in it for the long haul. Some of them started to say, well, maybe it's not such a good thing that we get married. That's my paraphrase. If you would look at verse 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man with his wife is like this, it's better than not to marry. Whoa. And he said to them, not all men can accept this statement. Well, they thought perhaps it wouldn't be good. Uh, and, and today we have that many, including Christians, are like finding reasons not to get married. And it's, it's convenient, it's uh, you know, beneficial, it's tax breaks, you know. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons not to get married. Uh, and a lot of people have the, the benefits of marriage without having actually done it. It's interesting statistic to me in 2018, uh, 29% of 18 to 30 year olds are married. Only 29%. In 1978, the percentage was 59%. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that, and I don't pretend to understand all of them, but typically it seems to me that singleness is uh, only for convenience, or a lot of times for convenience. And Jesus says, not all men can accept this statement that you would stay single. And so he gives three categories of people who are single uh, because, well, Two of them didn't really choose singleness. The last one did. And the last of which is the one that he's talking about. If you can accept this, accept this which has been given to you, singleness. So the first two are this. And it's in the text. So I'm not reading it. Those who are eunuchs from birth. Those who are celibate or, or choose to be single from birth. Or, and the second one is, those who are made eunuchs by men. So either through uh, some sort of genital, or ge genetic uh, problem or through a uh, 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 forced neutering, they are single and celibate, okay? Then there's not much choice. But the third category is the one that he's talking about when he's talking about those, if you can accept it, that what has been given to you do. And these are the people who voluntarily decide that they're not going to get married, they're going to remain celibate so that they can serve the Lord and serve the kingdom. They're the exception. They're not holier than thou. They're not better than other people. But they're not less than other people. It's not better than marriage. It's not worse than marriage. But they've said, hey, we're giving our lives to Jesus. Well, think about the Bible. At least a couple of good examples of that. Paul and Jesus. And that's what they chose to do. And so he says, 
These are the people to whom the exception is given and who have accepted it. And so I'm saying to you, if you're single and you don't feel like that's your calling, okay, good. What do you do? You say, yeah, but I'm frustrated. What do I do? I want to be married. <laughs> well, all I can say is, uh, Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, I don't mean that's, I don't take that as a name and claim it verse, okay? Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he will give you that, he will put in you the desires of your heart, and then if he puts the desires in you, what he puts in you, he'll grant you, because <laughs> he put it there. But the main thing is, just serve the Lord, and trust God that he'll work things out. Uh, and I know that sounds trite, but I've been there, okay? I was single for longer than I wanted to be, <laughs> you know, and I uh, did not feel called to singleness. But you know what? Sometimes God says, do you want me more than you want anything else? And until you want me more than anything else, you can't have anything else. So we serve the Lord. Finally, there's a little discussion on children. Uh, we learn uh, about children, okay? The priority of children. Now, Jesus was sitting there, and the, the crowd, people were, the children were coming up to him, and the crowd was like, the disciples were like, no, 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 can't have those little, and we talked about this, the little ones, you know? Because children were not that significant. They were unimportant. They weren't worthy of sitting before this teacher. But think about children in our own culture. And we are somehow, well, I know some people say, yeah, well, they're the center of attention. You have these uh, child-centered homes. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, that, that's, that's not good. But by and large, our culture is like diminishing the importance of children. And you think about, well, what do you mean? Well, uh, this is an old statistic, but in 2016, there were over 600,000 uh, abortions. CDC. That doesn't seem to me a high value on children. I talked to you about, uh, some of you are familiar with uh, what happened at Pella. When you think about, this would be, you know, how do we value children? And how do we, are we teaching our children? Yeah, some uh, young girl who identified as a, as a guy uh, went to the Pella swimming pool topless. And the Pella City Council decided that was okay, because we couldn't stand in the way of that. So these are the kinds of things that I'm talking about that we're, we're, we're devaluing children, and I think God wants us to hold them up. And what is he pointing to? He says, for why, why would you value them? For such is the kingdom of heaven. It's the simple, childlike trust of a child that's necessary for a person to come into the kingdom. Not just children, but anybody. We must understand that we're messed up people, that we deserve God's wrath, and that Jesus Christ died on the cross, and when he died there, he paid a debt that we owe, that if we would put our trust or our faith in his death as the payment for our sin, we would be forgiven. But that takes humility, that takes childlike faith, that takes simple faith of a child to accept that gift that God gives, and to acknowledge, I messed up. Yesterday I was uh, with our grandson. He turned two yesterday. And so we're at, at the lake, and uh, we uh, were in there, and they got this uh, 
Maui mat, this lily pad thing that they throw out on the lake, you know, and uh, you can walk on it and you can sit on it and you won't sink. And so he's out there, two years old, you know, running around on the lily pad and jumping and plopping. And his dad's on one side of the lily pad with a life jacket on in the lake, and I'm on the other side of the lily pad with a life jacket on the lake. And hey, Ty, hey, 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 Leo, you want you want to jump in? He just runs over to the edge and just runs off the edge down into the water and we grab him and he comes up spitting water out. Simple, childlike faith. He had complete trust in his father who would hold him up and carry him. That's what it takes for us to turn from our sin and to trust in Jesus. And that's what Jesus says, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Don't forbid them to come to me. And then he blessed them. And so how is it that we fail to bless? How can we bless the little ones, these little children? I say to you young people, if you're, if you're, if you're married, have kids. That's the way you bless, you, you value children. Now I know, I understand, not everybody can have kids. Not every, you know, but it's like, have kids, adopt kids. There's a lot of kids running around that don't have parents. We can value these little ones by, by adopting them. We can preserve them. We can fight against the evils of abortion. We can speak up against it. We can try to do what we can to stop it. We can work to stop the nonsense that's devaluing these young people that says they're, they're just little automatons and we, once we get them out of their parents' control, we can... Uh, Tell them what they need to believe. We can stop that nonsense or try to fight against it. We need to spend time, prioritize, spend time with them. You know what? I learned something from my grandson about what it is to have childlike faith. And we can learn from these kids. And we listen to these kids. We need to pour into them to teach them God's Word. What, do you, you know, what was so cool about these little ones up here singing, Right? Anybody up here going, oh, that's too bad. Why did they have those kids up there singing in front of church? No. You're going, isn't that precious? Isn't that what we want? There's no greater joy than this, to see that my children are walking in the truth. And so we pour our lives into them, and we pray for them, and we care for them, and we encourage them, and we speak God's truth into their lives because we want them to know Jesus. And we want them to know that they're going to heaven when they die. Children of God, and we pray for them. And at Creekside Church, we need to value them. That's why I'm so excited about this young mom's ministry thing. Because we're valuing the parents and the children. And we do that as we invest ourselves into young people's ministry, youth ministry, student ministry, children's ministry. We need to get about it. Because if we don't get about it, then we're not valuing that which God values. We need to be faithful to what God has called us to. So I don't know if you're here this morning, you're listening online, you, you say, I don't know about all this. Sounds like pretty rigid, strict stuff. Well, yeah, it is, but God knows best. It's God's will for God's way, and His plan is always the best. And so all I can do is implore you to say, you know what? You can redefine marriage. You can, you can uh, take easy road out of it. You can redefine and excuse singleness. You can trash little children if you want, but that's not God's way. And God would want you to know the reward of walking His way. And the only way you know that is if you have a relationship with Him through faith in Jesus. And those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, would we commit to the Word and not the world when it comes to marriage, when it comes to singleness, when it comes to the children? That would be my prayer for God's glory.
and for the advancement of the family. And when Jesus died on the cross, he gave his all for his family so that we could give our all for him. And so as we take the the bread and the cup, we remember what Jesus did. And if you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I invite you uh, to take the bread and the juice and to remember his sacrifice on your behalf and commit yourself to live fully for him. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for Jesus' words that are challenging and convicting and yet freeing and liberating because there is forgiveness and there is hope in Christ. I pray that each of us would find that. I pray now that as we uh, take a few moments to remember your death and resurrection so that we could be pardoned and forgiven, that we would confess our sin, get right with you, and rejoice in what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name.